This is Ethics Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Ethics Bites is a series of interviews on applied ethics produced in association with The Open University. For more information about Ethics Bites and about The Open University, go to open2.net. Aged 17, Kavya Visvanathan signed a two-year book contract with the publisher Little Brown. The publisher agreed an advance of $500,000, and she sold the movie rights. By the time the first book, How Opal Mater Got Kissed, Got Wild and Got a Life, was published in April 2006, she was 19 and a sophomore at Harvard University. Within weeks, the Harvard Crimson magazine discovered that her book reproduced almost verbatim many passages from similar so-called chick-lit novels. It seemed to be a blatant case of plagiarism. Indeed, so is this, because I've just reproduced, close to word for word, the opening passage of Richard Posner's A Little Book of Plagiarism. So what exactly is plagiarism, how does it differ from copyright, and what's wrong with it? Richard Posner is a judge, and he spoke to Ethics Bites, down a somewhat crackly line, from his hometown of Chicago. Extracts are from his book. Richard Posner, welcome to Ethics Bites. Thank you, happy to be here. Now the topic... I want to focus on today is plagiarism. I wonder if you could give an example, a typical example of plagiarism. Yeah, a typical, probably most common example is when a student copies passages from a book or article without quotation marks indicating the, uh, the source. Now, in that kind of example, people discourage the student by saying things like, you're stealing somebody else's words. But it's not like a typical example of stealing because when you steal a book, you actually prevent somebody else from reading that book. But when you copy somebody's words, other people can still get access to them. That's true. But the concern with the student plagiarism has nothing to do with theft or anything of that sort. It's that he's getting, he or she's getting unfair advantage over the other students. Does that mean that if a student copied a bad piece of writing, that they wouldn't have done something wrong because they wouldn't have got unfair advantage that way? No, because that bad book they copied, probably better than their own work. And even if not, of course, they're saving time, which they might allocate to some other course that they're really interested in, and that would give them an advantage over the other students. One key aspect of plagiarism is the concealment. The student is actually concealing the source. So if you acknowledge the source, it clearly isn't plagiarism at all. Well, it depends how it's acknowledged. If it's outright quotation, it has to be in quotation marks. It's not enough just to footnote it, because usually when you footnote a source, you indicate a source of an idea. You're not indicating the source of the actual language. The close case is one where you paraphrase, you put it in your own words, but it may be such a close paraphrase that it's only trivially different from the original, and that's plagiarism. But if I got permission from a novelist, say, to put certain chunks of that novelist novel into my own work and I can see that from the reader. Would that be plagiarism? Sure, because you would not be harming the novelist because he's agreed to it, but you're harming the readers. They think you're better than you are. They go and buy your other books and they're disappointed unless you had the same deal there. I would only classify copying as plagiarism when there's some harm of some sort. could be a harm to the person who plagiarized could be a harm to your readers. So, for example, uh, Margaret Truman. Margaret Truman is widely believed to have sold her name to a couple of mystery writers who then wrote mysteries which were published under her name. Now, clearly, there was no harm 
to the people who, who wrote the books to which she attached her name. But on the other hand, what about other mystery writers? There were victims of the deception. They were neither readers nor the writers of her books. There were other mystery writers who lost sales to readers attracted to the Truman books by the celebrity of the supposed author. Suppose that people read the so-called Margaret Truman mysteries because they thought as the president's daughter she would have some special insights that would be reflected in the book. Well, that would be a harm to her competitors, that is, the other writers of mystery novels. But if there's no harm at all, not harm to other students, not a harm to other readers, not a harm to the person you've copied, then you can call it plagiarism. See, that case sounds to me a bit like the case of ghostwriting, where, for instance, a celebrity like David Beckham purports to write an autobiography, but in fact it's written by a professional writer or written with the heavy assistance of a professional writer. Yes, well, you can distinguish two cases. Very often the celebrities acknowledge the ghostwriter, and then there's no conceivable harm. But I think that even if the ghostwriter is not acknowledged, there's no harm, because, first, I don't think anybody really thinks that celebrities write their own books, but I don't think they care either. So no one thinks, maybe different in England, but no one in America thinks that politicians write their own speeches. So there's no harm done if, if a politician has a speechwriter, he's expected to. I guess going the other way, it would harm the politician if he or she did actually write the speech and didn't get the credit for it. Yes, but there aren't any such cases anymore in our country. <laughs> a politician who didn't have a speechwriter would be regarded as a flop. He couldn't even afford a speechwriter. You know, <laughs> like going around without his clothing. What about the 18th century British author, Lawrence Stern, who copied love letters which he'd originally written for his wife? and send them to his mistress. Now, that's unquestionably self-plagiarism. Well, maybe I, should, I shouldn't call it self-plagiarism. I like to reserve the word plagiarism for examples of copying to which it is proper to attach a pejorative label. Plagiarism is, is pejorative. It's, it's not a synonym for copying. It's bad, concealed copying. So self-copying, which is extremely common, I wouldn't call it plagiarism unless there was some harm. So in Lawrence Stern's case... You know, maybe the, the letters to his wife were his very most considered and finest love sentiments. So maybe when he came to write letters to his girlfriend, he just couldn't think of a better way of expressing his feelings. So I would think that pretty harmless. Stern may have felt that his letters to his wife contained his most heartfelt and eloquent declarations of love, that he couldn't improve on them, and if nevertheless he composed new letters to his mistress, they would be inferior and thus fail to convey his ardour. Of course, wife and mistress would have been furious if they'd found out. They would have thought stern, lazy, exploitative and insincere. Yet it would not have been the copying that bothered them, but what the copying revealed about his character. Where self-copying becomes plagiarism would be a situation which a writer who's run out of ideas, say he republishes a work with a new title, and people buy the book and they think it's new and they read it and gradually they remember they've read this before. That would be plagiarism. So plagiarism, it's a form of fraud. And so what you want to ask in each case, is this fraudulent copying? Fraudulence implies intention and yes. frequent defense given by novelists who just happen to have copied out passages from somebody else's book is, oh, I must have read the book some time ago and somehow it 
unconsciously came out. I didn't intend to copy the passage. It must have been just that I memorized it. You're quite right. Fraud ordinarily connotes a deliberate effort, in this case, to conceal copying. We do have in law a concept of negligent misrepresentation. So you could say, well, even if the person is not deliberately trying to mislead, he should keep his notes more carefully in a way that he doesn't accidentally copy. But I don't believe these people who say that. It's one thing to remember a line of poetry or something, but it's not just that most people can't remember whole paragraphs. The more important point is, how is it that you would not recognize the fact that this paragraph was in a different style from your own? So I don't understand how these professional writers can lift large chunks from other people's work and then say, oh, I didn't know it was someone else. I suppose also there's the suggestion that unintentional plagiarism is less culpable than intentional plagiarism. Well, that's why people say it. I think that's true. And also, you don't have to acknowledge copying which your readership will recognize. Take something like T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, great poem. It's kind of it's a tissue of, <laughs> of quotations without quotation marks. But nobody would accuse him of being a plagiarist because they would recognize these snatches of poetry from other sources. Now, many of the sources that Eliot quoted, like Andrew Marvel, were well out of copyright anyway. But some people confuse infringement of copyright with plagiarism. And I, w I wonder if you could draw out the distinction between the two, because they do overlap to some extent. If you copy something and you acknowledge that you're copying, then it's not plagiarism. But it could be copyright infringement. On the other hand, if you copy something that isn't copyrighted, but you don't acknowledge it and that fools people, well, that is likely to be plagiarism. So where they overlap analytically, copyright is designed to protect the creativity of an author, painter, composer, what have you. Well, similarly, the type of plagiarism, which does hurt the person copied, that's very similar. So I discuss at the beginning of my book this interesting case involving this sophomore at Harvard College, Kavya Viswanathan, who wrote a chick lit book that contained very close paraphrases of 13 passages from another established chick lit author. That was a copyright infringement, but it was also plagiarism that, like copyright infringement, harms the author, because Viswanathan made her book better by the passages she took from this other person. They were competitors, and this other person would have lost sales. Here are extracts from one passage from Visvanathan's novel, and an almost identical passage she apparently plagiarised from writer Megan McCafferty. Priscilla was my age and lived two blocks away. Bridget is my age and lives across the street. For the first 15 years of my life, those were the only qualifications I needed in a best friend. For the first 12 years of my life, these qualifications were all I needed in a best friend. But that was before freshman year, when Priscilla's glasses came off, and the first in a long series of boyfriends got on. But that was before Bridget's braces came off and her boyfriend Burke got on. It seems to me there are at least two reasons why the controversies about plagiarism are becoming more frequent. And one of these is obviously the ease of copying using digital 
technology, we've all got the means on our computers to copy large passages of text that appear on the internet and so on. The second reason is there's a real cult of being original in our society. I wondered if you could say a little bit about each of those two. The ease of copying, the ability to copy off the, the web, yeah, sure, that lowers the cost of, of plagiarism. And yes, the, the greater emphasis placed on originality, sure, the greater the concern with copying. There's a third factor, though, which is the ease of detecting plagiarism. The same things that make it easy to plagiarize, namely the web, make it easy to detect plagiarism. If you suspect plagiarism, you send a student paper, you send it to these services, and they will scan their databases and try to pick up the plagiarized source. Many of our greatest writers have actually been plagiarists. I'm thinking of people like Shakespeare. They would have been quite vulnerable in the age of the internet with this plagiarism detection. Has something changed radically? Because we can detect these people, we come down much harder on plagiarists. Now, I wouldn't call Shakespeare a plagiarist. Certainly, he was a copier. Plagiarism is the pejorative form of copying, the fraudulent form. And Shakespeare was once criticized as a plagiarist by a fellow named Green. But the charge didn't stick. Everybody knew that uh, he was copying a lot from Plutarch and Hollingshead and so on. But uh, they didn't care because the concept of creativity stressed originality much less than we do today. The idea was copying was fine, but you had to add something. And Shakespeare obviously added a lot to what he copied. And there's another point there. In Shakespeare's time, books were very expensive. A lot of people didn't have access to them, and a lot of illiterates who would nevertheless go to his, his plays. So the more difficult of access the original sources are, the more of a service a copier is performing. But now it's so easy to access anything that someone who copies a work is not making that work available. It was available already. Richard Posner, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Ethics Bites was produced in association with The Open University. You can listen to more Ethics Bites on open2.net, where you'll also find supporting material. Or you can visit www.philosophybites.com to hear more philosophy podcasts. Mm-hmm.